Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Hey guys, welcome to episode 133 of the True Crime Couple podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope you are enjoying your summer if you're here in the United States, and we hope you're surviving the winter if you are in some of the countries that listen to us that are experiencing the winter time. It's our time to be in the sun, guys. We, we're sorry about that. Yeah, we kind of need it a little bit here. We do. A, a little, little, little pale. A little too much, though, because our grass is completely dying. John has been in crisis mode trying to water the grass. He's become a 45-year-old man. You know what? I never thought that I would be that guy that is taking care of his home like that and, like, putting out sprinklers and trying to make sure that everything is angled properly. It's like they're doing, like, geometry to make sure (laughs) that the sprinklers get the entire area of the the grass. At one point, the... We, we went back outside and the sprinkler had completely moved. So John was convinced that the kids in the neighborhood moved his sprinkler. So he made me check the ring. And it was really just because of like the pressure and the hose not being able to stretch far enough. But he was like ready to go yell at some neighborhood kids. I thought you said you weren't going to tell anybody that. <laughs> I, I was convinced it was a conspiracy against me. To ruin uh, you know, his yeah, lawn. I, I, you know, yeah, because it was so weird how it was moving. I, I didn't think that, you know, I guess water going through a hose can make the sprinkler move in such a way. Yes, John. We learn wonderful things every day. I guess so. Yeah. So besides for our, you know, lawn crisis, um, uh, what we did, I guess, two days prior to when this episode is coming out, we released a Patreon episode Um, The one we did on Israel Keys, it was actually a three-part series, and we really did try to record an introduction for what we released, but the podcast was so long because we combined three episodes, and it ended up being three hours and 30 minutes, and Audacity was just like, no, screw you guys, we are not letting you add even one more second onto this audio. So we weren't able to add an intro to kind of explain what was happening, And we did that because we wanted listeners to know what our Patreon episode sounded like. And we thought that releasing a big episode like that on the Israel Keys series, which we spent so much time working on, would be wonderful to release because it would also be good for our listenership. So we're just out here trying to get more listeners. So please bear with us and enjoy the the content as it comes your way. And it's always nice to just give you guys something extra. I mean, I believe we put that out, uh, I think it was like, Oh, like two years ago. Yeah, that was from August of 2020. So it's nice to just, I guess, give everyone the uh, the ability to listen to what we thought was a great episode, a great little series. Yeah. So um, before we get into today's episode, just want to do some housekeeping. All of our new patrons that are on the $5 and up level and some others who reached out to us and said they didn't get their stickers, we're sending all of our stickers out. So if within the next week you don't receive your stickers, if you're a $5 and up subscriber, please message us on Patreon so we can get your address again and we can send you another sticker. Yeah, and I apologize, guys, because I, I'm the one that always goes out and gets the postage and everything. And the day that I – the last two times I actually tried to go to my post office, literally they were like our whole system's down. 
So I don't know. Weird. But we, anyway, we're sending everything out. It's so. happening more and more that like all of a sudden people's like credit card debit machines are down. Yeah. They're I'm only like, taking I'm cash. Like, I know. I'm like, I don't have any cash on me. No. It's the end of the world. <laughs> okay. So that kind of covers everything. Oh, except that um, if you're new to Patreon, of course, you're going to get a shout out at the end of this episode. And that kind of concludes our housekeeping. And without any further ado, we're going to get into the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. In 2021, Joy Lynn Martinez was a single mother living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She had recently gone through a divorce, the first in her family. Because of this, she felt like she had failed. She kind of retreated inward and really just went to work and took care of her two sons. But after months of staying home, Joy Lynn was encouraged by her friend Maureen Bustamante to get out again. She made her get a babysitter so they could go out and they could have fun. And Joy Lynn is truly a beautiful woman. And her friends knew that it would just take a little bit of coaxing for her to feel confident again. But really, it would only take one night. That night, while they were sitting at a bar, the women were approached by a good-looking man. His name was Howard Bruce, and he was 39 years old. He and Joylyn really hit it off. He told her how beautiful she was and how lucky he was there that he had stopped there that night, like it was kind of fate. And she found out that he was also divorced. He had three daughters, a good-paying job, and he was just a really sweet guy. So at the time when Joy Lynn was at her lowest, it seemed like it was fate that put him there in her life to kind of lift her up and feel confident about herself again. So that night, he asked her out on a second date, and there was nothing she wanted more. Their first official date was at a country music bar where the couple danced all night long. But it was on that date that she learned there was something wrong, right? There's always a catch. He's married. No, he's not married, but that that would be bad. No, I said he was divorced. Oh, <laughs> you're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just trying to think like the worst possible thing you could find out. <laughs> I feel like this is a true crime podcast, so there's like the horrific things you could find out. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I don't know. Tell me. I'm, I'm stumped. He's going to be moving soon. Oh, oh, okay. All right. That's not too bad. That's not too bad. And... It's because his daughters lived in Colorado with his ex-wife, and he wanted to be closer to them. So he was planning on making the move to Pueblo, Colorado, which is, I wouldn't say massively far away from Albuquerque, New Mexico. So it's doable. And of course, this was disappointing to Joylin, but the two were having so much fun, and they just seemed to be so perfect for each other. That although they weren't intending to get into a long-distance relationship, they just decided to go for it. So far, I mean, at least it seems like he's kind of up front. You know, he's saying, you know, this is what's going on. I'm moving. Yeah. Seems fine. Is this like a ploy to make her leave where she lives and come with him? You know, because, listen, we, we know how relationships are, right? Like, you can only do that long long distance relationship so long before one side's like listen i've had enough either we need to not do this or we need to figure out how we could accommodate each other right so if she leaves to go where he is now she'll be with no friends no family and now she's kind of isolated and relies on this person yeah and we know that is kind of a tactic of abusers so that look at you learning yeah i'm learning 
Good Sorry, job, I kind of stumbled in the beginning there, but that's but that is like a like the word. It's like a, the typical uh, lifetime movie. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? This but is that how is, it unfolds. This is the yes. fun beginning. Correct. Yes, the corny nightclub scene. Yes. Yes. So, is this red flag worthy? <sighs> you know, Yellow I think flag? you. I think you and I are. We're always on guard, right? So I want to say, yeah, like we don't know enough about this man. You're too kinda, perfect. You kind of yeah, too perfect. Kind of getting like just kind of jumping into a relationship with him, even though it's I know it's a long distance. Mm-hmm. It's very quick. Now I'm gonna flip the script on you a little bit because okay. we randomly met at a quick check, right? We did. And I thought you were too perfect, so I thought there was something that had to be wrong. Well, I think I think that you know that's a good point, but I, there is something about when when a a man or a woman is too perfect, right? Yeah. It's it's, but then again, you're trying to be at your best. You're trying to. Oh yeah, you're you know, in yeah. get them mode. Exactly. So like, <laughs> I I think it's normal, but it's what follows. I think that is what can be concerning. Yeah. But everyone's like that. When you meet somebody for the first time, you're on your best behavior. You're in, you know, you're you know, you're dressed from head to toe, and you're perfect. Oh, one hundred percent. Come on, you, you are ha- going you know. in. So, I don't find that weird. I think what might be coming. Maybe there might be some red flags. So no red flag yet. Okay. But it could be looming over the horizon here. Okay. So now, even though they lived in different states, things really were working out for the couple. Howard was like Prince Charming. He would go to New Mexico every other weekend to see Joy Lynn and her two sons, to whom he became very close. He would buy her things and take her on romantic getaways and it got to the point where he hated being away from her so much that he was there every single weekend. I have a question flag. A question flag. Okay. Uh, it's a question flag we have yes. to put here. We established this on a Patreon episode. I don't know if we talked about it on <laughs> the regular episode. No more flags. <laughs> John kept saying red flag, and it was more like he just had a question. So yeah. we established okay, a question This flag. is a question flag. Okay, go, go for it. Now, see, now this is where it borderlines and teeter-totters because now I'm wondering – Okay, if this guy is buying you things, he's getting a little obsessive over you. Where are your daughters that you keep claiming that you have? You think he's making up his whole identity? Well, I mean, you would think after after a couple of visits, you'd introduce your kids. She has met his children. Okay. So yeah, I like they've that. gone back and forth, but it's a lot easier for him to come visit her because Joylin has consistent custody of her sons. Whereas he has shared custody with his ex-wife. Okay, so we didn't know so that fact. So it's easier. Sorry. Okay. But no, but that's why I These do this. These are great questions. Yeah. okay. That's why he's making the travel. Plus, he travels for work. So it kind of is just something that works out best for them and is most convenient. I would say him coming every weekend, like switching from every other to every weekend, then does become a lot. But it was really because they missed each other and wanted to see each other versus a controlling aspect. And we've been there. You used to come to my place every weekend. Every weekend. So, yeah. So at this point, Joylin was struggling financially. And she always told Howard that she didn't need help because she was very prideful. But he would pay her bills, contribute to groceries every time he came. And sometimes he would do things without her knowing. And then, like, after the fact, she would figure out that, like, he had paid an electric bill for her. That's nice. Yes. And she felt like she'd really gone through things with her ex, but Howard was kind of her second chance at life because 
It didn't seem like he was doing all these wonderful, great things for her. But at this point, there was no strings attached. So she thought this was just, here's this wonderful man that wants to provide for me and my two sons. Yeah, I mean, not everybody gets a second chance or, you know, to kind of, you know, sometimes people get on the first try. Others do not. So it's true. So five months into their relationship, Howard asked Joylin to marry him. He felt the same way about her. And he said that he never thought that he would ever get married again, but there's nobody else he wanted to do life with other than her. He couldn't wait to have a beautiful blended family with her. And after the proposal, Joy Lynn agreed to move with her two sons to Pueblo, Colorado. She would miss her family and friends, but Howard had a great job there, and the plan was for her to go to school once she got out there and the kids kind of became settled, and then she would make a career of her own, and the two of them would have a pretty wonderful relationship and life, because if he has this wonderful salary and she's going on to also have a good salary, they'd be living pretty wonderfully out there. It just seems too perfect at this point. Like, it's kind of weirding me out now. Well, it gets more perfect. Okay. They have an adorable small ceremony in Hawaii. In September of 2003. Okay. From September until late May, Joy Lynn was going to have to continue to live in New Mexico because she wanted her sons to finish out the school year there. She felt it would be too much of a transition to go to like a new school in the middle of the year while also going through this move away from their family and friends. So this was something that Howard wasn't the happiest about because he wanted to live with his new wife. And, you know, obviously his stepsons, who he was really close to, but he understood that the kids would always come first. And that was something that the two of them talked about consistently, was that his daughters and her sons would always come first in any decision making that they would do as a couple. I mean, that's good. You got to put the kids first because, I mean, this is a a very big change. I mean, she was a single mom, you know, well, pretty much. Uh, for a long, I'm sure a long time. No, just it, the divorce was pretty recent when they met each other. Oh, okay, all right. So I mean, but still, that's that that in itself has changed. So yeah. you go from you know your parents getting divorced, then now uh, a new stepfather in the mix. Yeah, and I'm sure likewise for his side is the same thing with his kids. Right. So you know that is a little traumatic. So it is good to always consider them before anybody else, especially because yeah, you're introducing them to new step parents. So. Treading lightly and trying to put the kids' needs before your own is really important when it comes to these massive transitions that you're introducing into your kids' lives. Now, even though they were separated, he wanted to keep kind of close ties on her. He was nervous about what she was doing, where she was going, and the phone calls started more and more now that they were married. Like, what are you doing? Are you out? And she would joke back with him. Like, she took this in a joking way more than, like, he's trying to control me. And she would joke with him, like, oh, I'm out with my boyfriend, you know. But she was really out with her friends. So um, we're seeing a little new introduction to kind of some strange behavior from Howard at this point. Right, because now you're starting to, I mean, the perfectness is starting to unravel because... It's almost, it's so weird how there's a connection between, like, when it's in that dating boyfriend stage and then all of a sudden the men that are like this 
once you're married, it's like the claws, like you know, are in. And well, now the possessiveness starts. The possessiveness starts, right? And I don't. I guess it's because it's just harder to break away from someone that you're married to, right? Yeah. Because like I, you know, it's a, it's a legal document. It's a binding. You know, if you're religious, it's, it's a annoying. binding. You got to get lawyers yeah, involved exactly. if you want to break up now. Right. So it's almost like once you establish that, now you got them where you want them, and yeah. it's harder to get away. I think Howard also knew. That one insecurity that Joylyn had was that even though her first marriage, like the failure of her first marriage, was not entire, wasn't her fault at all, she still felt the responsibility of the failure for the marriage because her, in her family, a very traditional family, nobody was divorced. So she's the first divorce and she felt like she had not only failed herself, her son's but also her family. And she didn't want to be somebody who would ever get divorced again. Like when she talked about marrying Howard, it was kind of like, this is it for me then. Like, I don't want to be divorced twice ever. And he knew that insecurity within her and knew that she would work at this marriage no matter what. So I feel like he felt a little bit more comfortable allowing his tendencies to come out. Yeah. Also, think about when you were in a, uh, another relationship, right? Like, like we'll just use, you know, we'll use you for an example. Oh, God, my past relationships. No, no. I'm not, no. not like, not to get into okay. super detail, but okay. just on, on a surface level, though. Um, you know, like when we when we met each other and we were going on dates and stuff, you know, you happen, sometimes you, I think it's normal for you to kind of bring up past relationships. Um, relationship issues or qualities that you did not like of your ex-boyfriend or mm-hmm. whatever and when you're saying that out loud for someone that seems like this dude he's building his like for lack of a better like you know un- like term or whatever he's building a case against you to make sure that you just can't leave you know yeah. you, you know you're innocently saying yeah my you know my last you know my last boyfriend he was you know he would do this so he's like avoiding like those landmines that would trigger that person yes but incorporating the things that he likes to do, and it doesn't set off that bell like, oh, my God, I need to get out. You I get, get what, what I'm you're saying? saying. He is using – he's, like, kind of weaponizing what she's saying and using it against her. Pretty much. It's yeah. almost – it's like – For we, manipulation. Yeah, it's like, you know, you're wearing the invisibility cloak. You know what I mean? You can get away with so much. Because you're dodging all Because you're dodging and you know exactly what she likes and what she doesn't. But that's what it's like being a manipulator. And I think that's the beginning stages of being in a relationship that involves coercive control because it is something that happens gradually. And then all of a sudden you turn around and you're like, holy shit, I'm in this relationship that's really toxic for yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. And potentially dangerous. And dangerous, yep. So unfortunately, the move did not go as smooth as they had hoped. It took longer than expected to sell her property. And because of this, Joylyn didn't get to move in with her husband until November of 2004. Over the next few years, her marriage to Howard did not play out as she expected it to. At first, he was the same man that she had known while they were dating. He was loving and he doted on her and the boys, his daughters too, of course, when they were staying at the house, which was a beautiful and large property as it had to accommodate them and five kids when they were all there. So they did live in this, like, gorgeous house. So she kind of felt like, well, look what I have. 
how could I feel ungrateful? It's all right. part of this. Well, that's plan. Exactly. It's one of the it's like the pillars of being a controlling weirdo asshole. Yeah. You know, like it's one of the pillars. Let me make this person feel like they got everything and they can't have any. They they, they, they won't say anything because I've given them everything. And Correct. I've given them this wonderful life, quote unquote. Um, I have a question. Do we know? Yeah. What, uh, do we know what he did for a living? He is in computer sales. OK. So, I mean, it, it, his job kind of changes a lot. Because he's always working for different companies, but he works in a sales capacity. So he does travel for work a lot where he works for one entity, but he's trying to sell the computer parts and he works with the IT departments of various different businesses and corporations. Okay. So he's kind of always on the road. So it's like um, um the, those medical suppliers pretty much. Yes, but with computers. With computers. Okay. And as you can imagine, in the early 2000s, this was really taking off. Which is why he was making so much money. Okay, cool. I like when you have a question and I know the answer to it. I I'm glad. It's you like my students. <laughs> I should know all the answers. You have to know everything. No, it's so hard. Like even with the students, when they ask me like a question, and I'm like, uh, I'm gonna have to get back to you on that one. I can't pretend. I can't possibly know the history of the entire world. No, you, you know? have to. <laughs> <laughs> they think I do. They think. Well, I that's do. a good thing. Yeah. At least I'm not one of those people that make it up. That's true. I do know. No, you're a teacher. You're not allowed. You're not allowed to make it up. No. So as Howard kind of was going through different jobs, so it's good that you brought that up. He began to travel more, and it got to the point where he was on the road more than he was home, and that wouldn't have bothered Joylin as much, but everything had changed with them. So, if things were still normal like they were when they were dating, she would have been okay with him being gone. But now things were very bizarre around the subject of money. Howard was the only one working and he controlled all of the finances. So if Joylin wanted anything, she had to ask for it. And this was a shift in the dynamics because he would, when they first got together, he would shower her with gifts, like whatever she wanted. For example, once he was planning this beautiful getaway, you know, for them to go to Mexico and she didn't know about it. And he just showed up at her house with a suitcase of a whole new wardrobe, socks, underwear, bathing suits, clothes, and said, come on, let's go. And now when you're dating, that's like, oh my God, how spontaneous and romantic. But when you really think about it and you do the analysis of this, you're like, okay, well now he's controlling everything that you're wearing. He's yes. picked out what he wants you to be. Yes. And now you're going away. Yeah. No, I'll be like that. You know, it's so funny because that's – I used to be very spontaneous, right? Yes. Like, and, and, I, and I always thought in the back of my mind – see, I was getting ready for true crime even before I even knew I was going to do a podcast. Wow. I would say in the back of my mind, I hope that Kay – doesn't think that I'm trying to be controlling or weird. I just like to do things spontaneous and just have a really, really good time. So, like, but that could be t taken as being controlling. Right. Like, you when know? we first started dating, um, my, uh, well, when we met, I was a senior in college. So, I was starting to do my student teaching. And when you do student teaching, it is so exhaustive that you cannot work. And do student teaching because you're basically you are a teacher 
And of course, you can do things like at night, but it is so much work because you're coming up with lesson plans like the day before you do it. Then you're also going to your college class and it's it's just a hot mess of things. So I had left my job at the daycare center to go do student teaching, but I wouldn't have an income for four months. And John paid out my cell phone plan and then started paying for my cell phone. And remember, you were like, I don't want you to think I'm controlling you. I just want to oh, help yeah. you. Yeah, I just wanted to help you. But you made it like so clear like this. I have no control over this. Yeah, like I'm I'm not looking at this. I don't even have it set up. I yeah. can't see anything. This is, you know, this is your password and everything to your own like thing. You could check it out yourself. Right. Like I just wanted to help. But that could be taken that way. Right. So it's just so funny how this is going that way because we're trying to figure out, is he controlling? Like, I mean, at this point, I think we know he is. But it can be taken a certain way. But see how those red flags were there? Because I think there's a difference in you saying, I'm going to pay for this to help you. I'm not doing this to control you. This is its its own entity. And he is more kind of just like, I'm taking over your life. Right. Like your thing was your, uh, you know, had your name. Everything was like, you know, so it was different. But I did feel that way. So I didn't want to be this guy. <laughs> So now the way that it was situated was that if Joylyn wanted anything, she had to ask for it, which is an uncomfortable situation anyway. And I feel that this dynamic does exist in many relationships when one spouse is working and one isn't. And I can imagine that it's really uncomfortable. So this goes beyond just like the normal, okay, I'm asking because I'm paying a bill. She had to ask him for everything. Like if she needed new clothes, groceries, um, if she wanted makeup or anything, she had to ask him for that money. Like she didn't have any spending money. Yes, that, that's not that's not fair. I mean, if, you know, if she's going to be at home and taking care of the kids and stuff, I mean, you have to give her the ability to take care of herself and to have her own like you know, the ability to do so. Spending you know, money. Spending money, spending money, uh, credit card, debit card, whatever the case. If that's what you want, meaning her to stay home, then you have to provide her the ability to do things. Yeah. Weirdo. Yeah. Uh, why are men like this? I, I, I want to I wanna Some know. Some are. Uh, I have so many questions. <laughs> the inner mind of some of these dudes are unbelievable. Well, another thing that Joylyn didn't like was the fact that Howard continued to put off her schooling. So she didn't like the fact that she had to ask him for money. Like that was annoying. She wanted a job and she wanted money of her own. So this isn't someone who's like, well, I want to be a stay at home mother. Um, I want to just be home. Her kids were older at this point. So she was staying at home with her children when they were younger. But now that they're in school, she kind of wants something to do during the day to occupy her time. And she wants to contribute to the household because she's now living in a larger household than she was when she just had her two sons and she was a single mother. So she wants to contribute not just to the bills, but she doesn't want to have to ask her husband for money. Yeah. Especially because he's being weird about it. Right, exactly. Because in a lot of households, it works where one spouse is going to stay home and it's not, they don't have to ask for every cent. 
and then that dynamic works perfectly. Yeah, I think yeah, like, I know what you're saying. It does work. It's just that in this specific scenario, in this in this marriage, it doesn't seem like it does work because he's not willing to bend at all. No. So. So every time she broached the subject of school, like her wanting to start, he would always say next semester, like the kids are settling in or next semester because I just started a new job or there was always an excuse for him to push back next semester, next semester. And she felt like he was really holding her back from the plan that they had created together for what their life would be like in Colorado. That's because he doesn't want her to be independent because we, like we all know, it's just another form of control. Right. So really the only thing she could do, like she's home, the kids are at school, so she's just cleaning all the time. Like she kind of does it to make the hours go away quicker. You know what I mean? Yeah. And one day while she's cleaning in a box of Howard's things, she found a list of names and phone numbers. A list of female names and phone numbers. That's not good. No. Her stomach dropped. He was cheating on her. She knew it. She was so upset, and she decided that she needed to know what was going on. One of the names had a star next to it, so she decided that she was going to call that number. When she did, a woman picked up the phone. When Joylin asked her if she knew Howard Bruce, she said she did not. She yelled at the woman that he was her husband and that she should leave him alone. The woman on the line just said back to her, I have no idea what you're talking about and I'm not going to talk to you. And she hung up the phone. You know what I'm thinking? What? Yeah, she doesn't know who Howard is, but maybe he's going under another name. Oh, that's very interesting. Think about that. Okay. I mean, listen, I mean, uh, I'd hate to uh, dig up all, like, the secrets of, you know. Cheating men. Cheating men. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a common one, I feel like. Everybody would know that. But, yeah, like, I mean, look, you never know. He could be somewhere. He's traveling. Takes off his ring. Says, hi, I'm Dan. That's true because he does have the ability to kind of go in and out of places so it would make affairs a little bit more right. easy. I'm sure that was something she was also self-conscious about because he travels so much. Also, he does have the ability to have a, a great conversation. He's a charming guy. He's a charming dude. So I think for him to just walk up to a random woman, I think he has the confidence to do so. Yeah, and he's good looking. Right. So, so yeah, probably just lying about his name. Possibilities so probably, are there. Yeah, this woman probably just had no idea. Well, before we get any further into the story, we're going to take a break and talk about our first sponsor of the show, Lumi Labs. So where we left off, the list of names, she made that phone call. And now she has a pit in her stomach. And at this point, it's five years into their marriage. And Joylin really believed that her husband, Howard, was cheating on her. And of course, she was upset and ashamed and just all of those feelings that you get when you feel like the person you're with is cheating on you. And she was most upset because she did everything he wanted. She was a good wife. She had moved her whole life for him away from her friends, her family, 
and she was kind of dealing with the fact that she couldn't spend money and it's kind of just like what the hell you know why are you doing this yeah i don't, I don't mean to, i don't mean to interrupt i just want to bring up something too because I, I i just thought about it like i think we should touch on this i'm getting a weird vibe with the whole like phone number thing when they when she opened up that box right it was like in a box she said yeah right? There was more than one phone number there, right? Yeah, it was a list of female phone numbers. I get Dexter vibes with that. Okay. Almost like it's a memento of some sort for some reason. Okay. Now, I know that she, and I'm not saying he murdered them or anything. Right. I'm just saying that, like, it's like a weird, like, collecting memento. I, you know, I've been with this one or I, I don't know. I see what you're saying. And if, I feel like if, if that's there, there's gotta be, there's gotta be more. Okay. Like, there's got to be more that he's doing that's shady and weird because he's been so perfect up front. And now we're starting to find the first clue with these phone numbers in a box. I feel like he's doing some more stuff. So you're here. saying she scratched the surface of something really bizarre here. I think this is the tip of the iceberg. Okay. Yeah. I think she doesn't even know what she's getting herself into. I yeah, don't think. no, I don't think I, so. I think this is weird. But of course, this is the first place her mind goes because she has this you know wealthy good-looking husband who travels all the time for business and she's thinking okay well while he's away is he having sex with other women and finding a list of names that's where most people's minds would go oh yeah 100 percent. and you know what do you do in that situation to be honest i don't know i hope i never have to know, I know. <laughs> when you are like sitting waiting for him to come home you've just you rage clean i mean i guess that's the best form yeah, of uh, have to rage stress clean. relief that yeah. or going to the gym but yeah like i said i just think there's more than just the names in a box it's weird okay so you think this is tip of the iceberg yeah this is like a red flag like maybe you should leave maybe yes. confront him see where his head's at and then i don't know if you don't like what you hear i think it's time to leave lady yeah yeah well eventually howard came home you know, mid-rage clean. And when he came home, she showed him the list. She was furious, but he was calm. It's not what it looks like, he told her, of course. Um, this list, and, you know, rightfully she agreed with him, it was in an old box that he never goes in anymore. So she was really kind of cleaning the depths of the closet. It wasn't like she found it in his pocket or in anything recent so he was saying i'd forgotten completely about this it's an old office paper and all of the contacts were um contacts from when i was selling computer stuff for an old company he said i was still married to my ex-wife when this list was made hmm. interesting mm -hmm. but he's good he's good he's good he's good so he told her that he would never do anything to hurt her um and it took some time, but he convinced her that the list was nothing. I think it, it also, going back to the psychology of Joylyn Martinez at this point, is she doesn't want her second marriage to fail. Right. So she wants to believe that it's nothing. Everyone wants to believe that it's nothing. And I think it's, I feel like, you know, it's, it's easy for us to sit here and say, right. leave, oh, he's good, because... If you were in that moment, and obviously we're telling a story here that has an ending, you know, but we don't know, you know, she didn't know how this would play out. So it makes sense that she would fall for that. 
and it makes you know, sense. We've, you know, had people in our lives that were being cheated on. Yeah. And we knew that they were. Right. And when we told them, they said, no, I have to see it to right. believe it. Right. And that, you know, it's the denial part of it. Well, you don't want to believe that. You don't want to believe that. Yeah. And you want your life, like, she's created this, like, happy bubble and you don't want it to be burst by anything. That's true. So after that incident, things were a little strained. Howard still needed to be on the road for his business trips, and this left Joy Lynn feeling as alone as ever. The couple spoke over the phone about her taking the boys to go see her parents and extended family in Albuquerque. Normally, he would tell her to wait for him. He wanted to go, too. You know, another part of that controlling aspect. Yeah. But this time he didn't, right? Because he's on his best behavior because he's still trying to convince her that this list isn't something to be worried about. Yep. So he says, go ahead, you know, go see your family. She actually hadn't seen her family alone for quite some time. So Joylin was very excited to do this. She packed up some of the things, you know, for her kids to get ready to go on this trip. And then she remembered the videotape. Her parents were older and making the trip to Colorado for all of her kids' events wasn't the easiest. So, of course, they missed things. They came sometimes, but there was a play that her sons had been in that they had recorded that she wanted to show. Okay. So, she wanted to go into um, their bedroom where they kept the video camera and the videotapes to just kind of get that tape to bring to New Mexico to show her family this was the play the boys were in. So when she pulled out the camera bag with all the other tapes in it, she noticed that her husband, which is a very husband thing to do, just never labeled any of the tapes. They're all blank. Okay. So to be sure that she brought the right tape, she would have to kind of pop them all into the VCR and make sure she got the right one. She kind of made this mental note of, I have to start labeling them. So she went through, you know, family get togethers, a Christmas video. And then she put in one tape that would change her life forever. What? What could it be? You're smiling. (laughs) Well, not smiling. Good smile. Uh, Of course not. But I, I, I just know you're on the edge of your seat. I am. (laughs) So she knew that she was looking at her bedroom, but her mind would not allow her to piece together what she was really watching. It was her. She was laying on her bed, passed out. And she kept thinking that she didn't remember this. But of course she didn't remember it. She's not conscious. And then she saw her husband, Howard, come into the frame and look at the camera. She watched on as her husband proceeded to take off her clothes and rape her. What? Yes. Get the hell out of here. No. She was watching him do these horrendous things to her as she was passed out on the bed. Wait. Okay. So, hold on. That would mean that he had to have maybe slipped her something or given her something to knock her out yeah oh oh my god this poor woman so he she, videotaped it yeah this guy's a freak this guy's really weird 
sky is really weird. Okay, continue. Oh, my God. So she began to shake, and bile rose up in her throat. She ran to the bathroom and threw up. And kind of like you right now, there's a million questions running through her head. How? Why? This is the ultimate betrayal. She had trusted Howard with herself. She had been so fragile after her divorce, and she let him in. So how could he have done this to her? And for how long had this been going on? Right. And was this just one time? Right, because this is the only, like, it's just one recording. Right. You know, I'm going to red flag this right now, okay? Okay. What if this guy is like a, like a, a, like a serial rapist mm-hmm. or like some sort of weird dude? And he's pulling it once again. I'm referring like he's doing a Dexter move when he he gets he's controlling his urges by literally knocking out his wife and have and and raping her. So you think that he has these urges to do this to other women, and he's suppressing those urges by being married. Right. We have seen like similar things like that happen. Where um, now you're saying a serial rapist, but we've seen this with serial killers, like. BTK, like he had a job that kind of sufficed his urges to kill. So we saw a span of time where his crime stopped. Correct. So you're saying a similar thing is taking yeah. place here. Oh, yeah, 100%. I guarantee you that this guy has This is not his first time. Yeah, and I think this is, I don't know if he's, when I say run-ins with the law, meaning he hasn't been busted, but I think he's done stuff. Okay. There's no way that you would have um, the urge to do this to your own wife if it wasn't to control this crazy urge to do something very bad. Yeah. So I think that that's where we're headed. All right. So as she was in the bathroom, she called her friend Maureen and told her what she had just discovered. Her friend offered to come out there and at the very least opened her home to Joylin and her children while she figured everything out. She thanked her friend and told her that it was okay. Howard was due to come home the next day. Because he was supposed to say goodbye to them before they left for their trip to New Mexico. So Joylin confronted him about the tape as soon as he came home. What? No, don't do that. You, you might as well just, just say, leave. Oh, oh, love you. Bye. Have a good time. And then just go. Yeah. Oh. But she wants answers. I know. She feels so wrong. Uh, uh, trust me. I know. But that is not good because you yeah. don't even know what this dude is capable yeah, of. Yeah, you don't know how he's going to react. I would not have done that. You have kids. Just just get your kids. But she thinks she knows him. She loves him. He definitely, she definitely does not know him. I know. So she wanted to have this conversation while the kids weren't home. And they weren't home, which is why she kind of approached him right away when he got there. So at first he said he didn't know what she was talking about. He denied it. Then he tried to make excuses. They were drunk. Um, she, was, she wasn't passed out. She was just drunk. And he was drunk. And he didn't know what he was doing. And then he just said he was so sorry that it was a drunken mistake. But then as the conversation went on, because, you know, as fights do, they kind of circle the drain forever and ever. Howard's devious side came out. And I don't think he was able to help himself and she got a clip of who he was okay uh, because he said to her did it turn you on to watch the video okay man all right and her response was just she literally got sick again she threw up again so because they were planning a trip most of the kids things were already packed so she put whatever else of theirs she could fit in bags and she loaded up the car 
She packed her own things, and she told Howard that she would not be coming back. Oh, good. Okay. She was going home. Good. And, like, she meant home, because this clearly was not her home. Right. It never had been. So this was something that bothered Joylin greatly, of course. Here it is. Her second ma- marriage is a failure, and she, she kept blaming herself for that. So that was something she was internally struggling with. And that's sad because yes. you don't want someone to kind of house that sort of like guilt, guilt, and and like and like the resentment or whatever, like to themselves. Yeah, yeah. like it's not fair. Like, look, you did not take a video. She did nothing she, wrong. She did here. nothing wrong at all. This was all his fault. Yes, and but then at the same time, she also felt terrible that she had let this monster into her children's lives. You know, at least. She's a good enough parent to understand that she put them at risk. And she got out of it. And she got out. So, you know what? She did nothing wrong here. Right. So, over the next couple of years, Howard Bruce stalked her. Joy Lynn had made it very clear during all of their conversations that she didn't want to be in a relationship with him any longer, in any capacity. She'd wanted a divorce, but he did not. He would come to New Mexico all the time. He would bring her flowers, beg for her time so he could ask for forgiveness. He would also send gifts to her, to the kids, but she refused to let him into her life again and she would send back the gifts. She knew something was off. And now that she was outside of the relationship, it was easier to reflect on what had been wrong while she was in it. It always is like, it's always like that. Of course it is. So she would never be able to trust him again. So she knew she could never be with him again. So there was no point to talk to him. Joylin really wanted a divorce. The problem was that Howard, the man who had the money, did not want the divorce. And she didn't have any money to hire a divorce attorney. Because she, remember, didn't have a job. So when she returns to New Mexico, of course, her friends and family are helping her. But she's kind of, for at least the first year, working really hard to establish a life for her and her children. Yeah. And and it's almost like you have to start over again almost. Yeah, she did. Yeah. So because she hadn't worked the whole time she had been with Howard. So like, you know, you have this like empty spot in your resume and. And she was never allowed to start school when she was with him. So she couldn't hire the divorce attorney. And he would have contested the divorce, which meant she had to have gotten an attorney because he didn't want to sign the papers. So because of this, it meant she was still married to Howard Bruce. I feel like, I feel like the the way marriage is sometimes with that is really... It's wrong. It's unfortunate. I mean... We, you know, at the end of the day, it, as easy as it is to get, you know, married, it should be if one side just truly does not want to be with the other, it should just be as clear as that. Yeah. I mean, you either split your assets or whatever, whatever, whatever it is. And you know. now this only happens about like 1% of the time, but you can even appeal a divorce. I know. Which is so weird yeah. to me. If one person doesn't want to be in it, why are they forced to? <laughs> right. I don't want to be with this man. He does bad things. Yeah. You know, like, I actually have a videotape. I have a videotape. <laughs> you, you know, do you still want me to be with him now? Like, it's just It's very, strange. it's crazy. Yeah. 
So that leads us to October of 2009. At this point, Joy Lynn had been rid of Howard for two years, although he still continued to harass her and refused to not contest the divorce. She was working now and she was in control of every aspect of her own life. She was happy. She was with her friends, her family. They all surrounded her and supported her. But her mess with Howard wasn't over yet. One morning, she got a visit from a Pueblo, Colorado police detective. This, remember, is the place she lived in Colorado with Howard. Okay. She thought she knew why he was there, you know, because of the videotape or the divorce. She did have a restraining order, but she was wrong. When she invited him in and she sat down and she was talking with him, he said to her, do you know that your husband has been arrested for attempted murder? What? Oh, my God. Okay. And she was probably like, uh, no, because like, we're uh, not married, really. But yes, yeah, I'm forced to be married. She's like, well, there's a story there. <laughs> um, we actually are no longer together. So before I get into, I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger. Before I get into that, we're no. going to hear from our final sponsor of this show, Best Fiends. Okay, so where we left off, Howard has been arrested for attempted murder in Pueblo, Colorado. And Joylin is like, what? What is happening here? So after she explained that she was no longer with Howard because she couldn't afford a divorce attorney, she said she had no clue what was going on and that she refused any contact with him. So she really didn't explain anything. So she really just had no clue what was going on with anything. And uh, the detective was like, well, I'll let you know what's been going on. In 2007, shortly after she left with the boys, a young woman in Pueblo had sensed that someone was looking in through her open window. Do you know when you have all the lights on inside the house and you go to look outside, but you can't see anything because it's pitch black? especially because this woman had her window open. So all she saw was the screen. So there wasn't even like the window down. So she was reflected in the window. It was just kind of like pitch blackness because she's looking at a screen. Okay. Well, that's what happened. But she felt like there was something there or someone there. You're giving everyone nightmares tonight. I'm sorry. Because now any, now everyone's going to do that tonight. They're going to turn their lights on and not see what's out there and now think about what you just said. I'm, I Well, Great. it's only going to get worse. Thanks, Kay. Appreciate it. So I'll the- even be that way tonight, too. <laughs> Thanks. I know. You need to be, like, you're the one who's not supposed to be scared. Hey, hey. What are you trying to say I here? need you to be strong. Oh, I'm allowed to be scared. You have to be the man. You have to be uh, strong. I, I will, but I'm going to be scared while doing it. <laughs> so the woman got really close to her screen and she couldn't see anything. But she heard heavy breathing. She could even smell the man's breath. That's terrifying. Yes. So she panicked. She shut the window. She locked everything up and she called the police. Within minutes, the Pueblo Police Department was on the scene and they were canvassing the neighborhood. 
A few blocks away from the woman's home, officers Nicholas Hine and Nathan Pruce stopped Howard Bruce. Okay. So they did get him. He had been wearing all black and he had a mask with him. Like, not like a mask, but like a black cap that he could put over his head, like a balaclava. And he was arrested. Wow. Now, Colorado, and thank you for this state of Colorado, has very strong peeping Tom laws. That's good. So he was charged with misdemeanor invasion of privacy and second degree criminal trespassing. Joylin had no idea that he had done this or that he had been arrested. The detective then went on to tell her that his court case was supposed to have been earlier that week. And one of the arresting officers that was set to testify during his trial was Nathan Pruce, one of the men that had arrested him. Now, Pruce was the only officer that could testify because, sadly, Nicholas Hine had died of a heart defect while on the job in 2009. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, on the morning he was to attend court, Nathan Pruce noticed a hose going into his garage. Thinking that was strange, he followed the hose to the side of his house, where he found that hose hooked up to a 20-pound propane tank. Someone was trying to gas him out. Obviously, this was intended to either poison the family or they thought they would put enough propane into the house. And blow it up. That if anything sparked it, it would cause an explosion. And oh, and man. kill not just Nathan Bruce, but he had two children and a wife. That's crazy. Yes. So, obviously, he is going to freak out. Um, luckily, it didn't cause any explosion or any like poisonous like he got his family out okay good and everything was okay he got his wife and his children to safety he called the police but this was so obvious who would have done this right so the only person who would have wanted nathan bruce to die would be the man that he was going to testify against howard bruce So it was easier than detectives thought to connect Howard to the crime, and he was charged with intimidation of a witness, possession of an incendiary device, third-degree criminal trespassing, and attempted murder. Uh, On a police officer Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, that's insane. Okay. Well, good. I mean, he shouldn't be doing that. The detective asked Joylynn why, though. Like, why would he want to do this? Why would he go to this length for that? And they were trying to get some insight onto who Howard Bruce was. And Joy Lynn dropped a bombshell. I can tell you who I think he is. I think he's the Ether Man. What? The Ether Man? Yes. Ether Man. Now, let me tell you. That sounds really familiar. I'll tell you who the Ether Man is. You ready for this story? Yeah. Since 1985, there has been a man sexually assaulting women in three states. New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Texas. And Joy Lynn, after what her husband did to her, and after reading articles on the Ether Man, she thought that he was the one behind all of those crimes. What a good connection. Wait a minute. 
ether is a form of gas or something, right? Mm-hmm. If you breathe it in, you you pass out. You do. <gasps> Did he use it on her? This is crazy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is crazy. Wait, so this is even bigger than even the case. I mean, because, like, we're just covering, like, his weirdness and, like, mm-hmm. you know, obviously he's a rapist, but. Yeah. Oh, my God. So. He could be connected to. Wait, he's traveling all the places that he went. Those are the states that he he's probably wanted in. Yeah. So that's what he was doing on all his business trips. Maybe. Officially mind blown. But you kind of said you were like, oh, Dexter list. Yeah, well, it was. it's very like, yeah, like he lived, uh, it seemed at first very normal. Just, you know, maybe a little weird. But like, yeah, just hiding in plain sight. Huh? Right. Huh. Well, now I'm going to tell you the tale of the ether, man. Okay, yeah, please tell me. At first, his MO was to break in and sexually assault the woman that he had targeted. He was a large man that would overpower his victims. However, as time went on, he would subdue his victims in some way before the attacks began. He would unscrew any lights or motion-censored lights around the home of the victim, and then he would stare into their window until they fell asleep. That is... I'm scared now. Yeah. Because now I'm going to think that when I'm in bed now. Yeah. This is why (sighs) it's okay that I say... Are the windows locked? And we got to make sure these windows are locked. They're, they're always locked. <laughs> you do a great job doing a double check. I'm just saying, you know what it's like? Oh, it's almost like Richard Ramirez a little bit. Well, he would wait inside closets. I mean, he which was is inside the house. But, yeah. But I'm just saying, I mean, this it is, is pretty close. Yes. Okay. So these victims were always female college students or young girls who lived around the area of a college in any of those three states. Okay. And it kind of surrounded the same things. The University of Oklahoma, the University of New Mexico, and the University of Texas at Austin. You, you know, it's it's kind of because it's easy pickings. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but, like, you got to think he's going after young young women who are, you know, going to college. You know, they're just kind of going about their day-to-day. They don't, they're not thinking about that anybody could hurt them like that. So my psychological profile on him i guess as like somebody who has no schooling on it okay let me hear hear this (laughs) is he started these crimes when he was in college and i think he keeps recreating that high of the first time that he did it so he stays around the colleges i mean that makes sense because he keeps going back to the university of oklahoma which is where he went to school wow Mm -hmm. i mean that's that's a i I would on be on board with that profile hire me i'd hire you yeah so the man dubbed the Ether Man would then get into their rooms via an open window. Like sometimes people would just leave their windows open, especially in college towns, because usually like these apartments or kind of dorm like things, they don't have air conditioning. So people would sleep with their windows open. Right. Right. I did that in college, too. So if he couldn't get in through an open window, he did have a glass cutter with him. He would then hold a rag over the faces of his victims until he knew they were unconscious. Now, what would happen is a lot of times they would already be sleeping. So he'd have it over them. So they're breathing it in, but not realizing they're breathing it in. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yes. So he was especially messed up. So these women had no idea 
that anything like it's not like they would get startled and wake up and then be put out it was they were just sleeping and just had no yeah. recollection at all well sometimes they would wake up when he would oh. put the rag over their faces sometimes so we have the accounts of the the women who had woken up okay um a few times they would fight or bite or kick him like in 1997 Listen, I'm not really saying the names of these victims because a lot of them have not come out and don't want to. Okay. And through some documents, you know, you found some, I've found some names, but I just feel like these women who are survivors, not victims, I don't want to say they're victims, but they should not have to be brought up because I they're, agree with you. they're trying yeah. to get through this. I agree. So, in 1997, a 17-year-old girl awoke to a large man on top of her and a strong chemical smell filling her lungs. Every time she tried to breathe, right? Because now you're nervous and you start breathing more heavily, so you're breathing in the chemicals more. So, she was able to bite his hand that was holding the rag, and he ran off. And in the garden outside of her window, they found footsteps. And they also found the Tibetan prayer flag that he had taken from their yard and used as the rag. And it was soaked in ether because when she bit him and he ran off, she ran to her parents' room. And at first she thought when she bit him, she bit him enough to make him bleed because there was red all over her. But it was the fabric dye from the red flag that was all over her from the ether. Got it, right? It made it run, mm -hmm. right? It made the color on the flag bleed. Right. Yeah. So sometimes the women would wake up during the sexual assaults, completely helpless, um, because they're at the mercy of a man who would just lean over with more chemicals and hold it over their face till they were unconscious again. Because when they're getting out of these, when they're waking up, they're still in a stupor. So now you're wo you're woken up, but you have no control over your body. And this man's raping you and then you pass out again. And the next time you wake up, he's just not there. But you you've been assaulted. It's I mean, I can't believe that he's been able to get away with this since 1985. That's a long time. It's 2009. Wow. If the man didn't use a chemically soaked rag to anesthetize his victims, he would use a taser. The accounts of what he had done to countless women were terrible. The youngest of his victims had been a 15-year-old girl. One of his victims outside the University of New Mexico awoke in the middle of the night. She felt immediate pain. She was being raped. But there was nothing she could do to get her body to move. It was hard even to think. And the next thing she knew, she awoke again in her bed and her hands were still tied to her bedpost by a thick rope. The ether man was strange. The things he did to his victims varied and some things were the same. He always kissed his victims throughout his attack. Sometimes he would cut off their clothing and sometimes he would not. Sometimes he would put them in different clothing and rape them and then position their bodies in strange ways. He even um, cut one woman's hair completely off. Like, he's just random. He, like, seems to just do whatever he wants to do in the moment. 
He was always physically rough with them because the victims would have cuts and bruises all over their bodies. At the scene of the crime, the man would never leave behind fingerprints. But luckily enough for detectives, he would leave behind semen at each crime scene and shoe prints outside of the windows. Of course, because these crimes started back in 1985, DNA profiling wasn't really a thing. But then, you know, as the crimes are progressing through the 90s and into the 2000s, DNA profiling is something that we can do. However, the DNA profile from the serial rapist, this ether man, as he was came to be known as, it wasn't in CODIS. So this meant that either he had a clean record or maybe he had been convicted of a crime, but that crime didn't require him to provide a DNA sample. Right. Like if he was convicted of a crime and they, and they let's say they fingerprinted him, um, it would be easier. Well, there was no fingerprints. Like exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. Like the, he left no fingerprints. So he was smart enough to know that, which means he probably knew that his fingerprints were in the system. You can't go this long and not be, I don't, I don't want to call it sophistication, but like you, you just know that if you do something, if you, you know, if there's a misstep somewhere that you're going to get caught. Right. So like, you know, I, he knew probably, you know, back then, obviously there's no sort of the science, the scientific ways of figuring things out, but. But he even, he continued to leave semen at the scene. He did. Yeah. That's even weird. after he knew that, I think cause he thought he was invincible. Invincible. Yeah. I'm also surprised, and I and I hate to like kind of bring this into it because it it makes it even weirder. But like the fact that he's just going after young girls, like now we're talking girls because it's a 15 year old now. Yeah. Like he had two girls of his own, right? Yes, he did. So like I, I'm not trying. Well, if to, it's him. Yeah, I'm we're not. Yeah, there yet. I'm not trying to get weird, but like it is a little. How do you it's not concerning. have empathy? Right. It's concerning. You have two daughters of your own and you're doing this to someone else's kid. I don't know. It's just I'm weirded out by I that. think you're 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 thinking that he has empathy. I know. You're right. You're right. You're right. One victim in two thousand and three in Norman, Oklahoma, which is just outside where the University of Oklahoma is, said she woke to a man trying to put a stocking on her. Because of the way her foot was positioned in front of him because he was putting the stocking on, she was able to really forcefully kick him away. He was taken off guard by this because he thought she was still unconscious and it caused him to fall backwards, which then allowed for her to get up, run into her bathroom where she locked the door. Once inside, she realized that she had been handcuffed. And that those handcuffs had been clipped to a dog collar that was around her neck. The man pounded on the door twice and she screamed for him to leave her alone. Eventually, she heard him retreat down the stairs. She waited some time and then she obviously left the bathroom and called the police. I'll tell you what, she's extremely lucky and I'm glad that she was able to get away and call the cops because, I mean... To think that you had the ability being tied up, you know, you know, with yeah. her hands and her and her neck. She was in the perfect position to kick him away. Yeah. Thank God. Oh my God. So this victim and many others that got to see their attacker, the Ether Man, 
they weren't able to describe him, right? Because don't forget, they're still in this stupor. They're shocked by what's happening. So the last thing they're doing is taking in the features of this person. And truly, when they did describe him or tried to describe him, he had no distinguishing features. Like There was nothing that struck them. But they just said he was a normal white male in his 30s. Well, well it's also hard when he's wearing a, some kind of he's mask. He's not always wearing a mask. Oh, he's not? No. Okay. Well, that's interesting, too. Well, again, he thinks he's invincible. Yeah, I guess like he's just getting a little brazen and decides, you know, mm-hmm. I won't get caught. I won't even wear one, I guess. That's weird. It's 24 years he hasn't been caught. Wow, what a long time. That he can just get away with it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really because he's in three different states. Yes. That makes it a little harder to get yeah. him. Well, New Mexico was the state where the majority of these crimes happened in concentration. And they were the first to have a task force dedicated to stopping this man. But they were having no luck. One victim had seen his face and worked with a sketch artist, but it was so general that the sketch could have literally been anyone. As they approached the year 2000, they had a problem on their hands. By the year 2000, there were 11 confirmed victims of the Etherman in New Mexico. They knew definitively that they were his victims because his DNA was left at the scene. So they could match all of that DNA to each other, but they just had no person to connect it to. However, there were a lot of other attacks that were suspected to be like he was responsible for, but he didn't leave semen at the state at the scene. Okay. But in the following year, a majority of those cases had their statute of limitations coming up because second degree felonies only had a limitation of six years in New Mexico. So they didn't want this man to get away with all of these cases because that time had passed. So the district attorney at the time did something that had never been done before in the state of New Mexico. She was going to indict the DNA sample and enter the name of the person on the indictments as John Doe. And the profile is the person. Okay. I've never, I never even heard about that before you could do that. So then that, what that does is because they're indicted in 2000, that kind of freezes the statute of limitations. So that, so in a way, you're doing that. You're freezing that. That way, the next time he might do it, like I guess you could test. The- well, you can catch him whenever. Right. Oh, so you could catch okay, him okay. in 2020, but because he was indicted in 2000, it's it still meets so the statute indict, of limitations. Indict the evidence, not indict the man. Right. Makes... Well, technically, you are indicting the man because here's his DNA profile. True, true. It held up in court. I'm a little confused with it because I've never even heard that you could even do that before. Yeah. Wow. That okay. person's name would just replace John Doe. Okay. Wow. Yes. So in 2000, the DNA profile was charged with 44 counts of varying degrees of breaking and entering and forms of sexual assault and physical battery. But this did not stop the attacks. This is when they actually began to spread to other states. By 2004, the Ether Man had struck again six more times, bringing his known victim count that had DNA samples at the scene to 17. But of course, there was various others that they thought he was responsible for because of the MO, but he didn't leave a DNA profile behind. Detectives were at a loss. 
task force in all three states actually came together and they kind of had a round table and they went through all of their cases and they they tried to figure things out. Like these states were really in communication with each other about what this man was doing in their territories. And they even reached out to the FBI for a profile. But the profile was so general too that it's like, again, it could be anybody. So, and every lead they had was just a dead end. These men were, they worked so hard and they were so frustrated. It's really hard when you put that much effort into something and it just, it bears you nothing, you know? Right. And that was why when Joylyn Martinez told the Pueblo, Colorado detective that she believed her husband was the ether man, everything clicked into place for the detective who was familiar with the case because of how desperately law enforcement in the three states to the south of him were trying to find this man. The detective, after leaving Joylin's house, reached out to the task force and let him know that he thought he might have their guy and he would get a DNA sample for them. You know, it's interesting, too. I, it'll maybe not. It, maybe it won't change much. But I guarantee you that if he was if, if she was an ex-wife now, that they might not have been so quick to go to an ex-wife than they would with an actual wife. It's almost like it was on purpose. Right. Like this all fate played a big yes. part in this. Yes. That was what he, he messed up there. Because if he would have just ended it and they wouldn't have. gave her, well, her they divorce. might have. They might have. They wanted to kind of figure out who this guy was, right? But what I'm saying is, at this point, they have they're not making that connection yet. They just want to know, hey, do you realize that your husband, that you're still married to, just this. attempted to murder a cop and his yeah. family? So that's why I'm saying, like, and then right then and there is when they find it and out and make the connection, right? Um, I just have a question. I, I this is a question I have. Okay. Okay. Hopefully I can answer. Like, why do you think that during all this, because he's still raping people in 2004. Yes. So at this, at this point, he's with her. Yeah. So why do you think he would, ma- you know, get into a relationship and then marry her, still carry on all these things when it could have burned him? Why her? Uh, you know, like, why marry her? Well, I think he, he was doing a really good job of keeping up who he was in his own life. You think it was just like a form of just his, cover? I think it's a form of control. He loved controlling things. Because when you talk about, like, sexual assaults and rape, it's not really about the physical sex of it all. It's about the the power and the control. And look what he did with Joy Lynn. That was his biggest con. That's true. Getting her, controlling her, and now always having her under his thumb in this big house in Colorado, and he could always come back and do whatever he wanted to her as well. It's a life game. And she's one of the biggest victims of him. I I can't I can't get over how he was just able to do all this. Well, hold on. So The Colorado detective, this is what clicked in his head because this man was very intelligent. And he said at first nothing made sense to him. Like the crime that Howard Bruce had committed, meaning the, the peeping Tom laws. And although the peeping Tom laws are great in Colorado, better than in most states, Howard Bruce wasn't going to get a lot of jail time for it, if any. 
So why would he go to the lengths that he did to kill the officer that was supposed to testify against him? And that's why he went to see Joy Lynn because he was trying to figure out why would this guy want to kill a police officer for such a minuscule crime? Well, because in Colorado, invasion of privacy or peeping Tom laws are considered sexual crimes, as they should be. And if you are convicted of a sexual crime, your DNA is taken and stored on file. Okay, see, so he was he saw, he that, foreseen that if he was taken in on that charge, that they would eventually connect everything. The whole game everything. would be over. Right. Because then his DNA would be entered into CODIS and it would hit with the three task force Correct. in the other states. So that's why Nathan Proust had to die. Wow. <laughs> that is insane. Wow. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, it makes sense to go to such lengths now. This has got me like a spinning, like I'm spinning right now. I have no right. other way to. Because if he got convicted, Howard Bruce would be known. It's he's the ether man. So then what I was kind of saying then made sense that the then that he kind of he kind of realized that he I mean, he had to have known then that he was leaving behind DNA and that it could be tested. Yeah. If if he, he just could never get caught. Right. And he didn't think he was ever going to get right. caught. But he had he definitely thought about that because if he didn't, then we, he wouldn't have gone to such lengths to kill them. Mm-hmm. So it had to be something. In and his that's mind. why the detective went to Joyland even in at all, because he was like, why? It didn't make sense. Right. It's too extreme. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit what yeah. happened. So when the detective in Colorado went into the holding room where he was keeping Howard, he told him to open his mouth for a DNA sample. At first he refused, but it was obligatory, so the detective told him we could forcibly take it from you. He relented and allowed him to do the cheek swab. What is this for? Howard asked him. And the detective said, I think you know. And he left the room. Oh, now sit and ponder that one. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So it was confirmed that Robert Howard Bruce's DNA sample was a match for all of the DNA that had been left at crime scenes since the 1980s. Okay. He was charged with the 44 counts that had been assigned to his DNA back in 2000 and the additional counts that had amassed since 2000 from the states of New Mexico, Texas, and Oklahoma. And let's not forget about the Peeping Tom incident in Colorado and the attempted murder of a police officer. I mean, that's a lot of charges. This man is not going to see the light of day again. Definitely shouldn't. Howard Bruce knew that he had been caught. He ended up pleading guilty to 40 counts across four states. But as a part of his plea deal, he had to agree to tell detectives everything about his crimes. And he did. And the detectives that were speaking with him, they later said, we wanted him to say everything, but we didn't. We wanted him to just shut up. It was so bad. Like, here you are in a room trying to pull every why, how, what, when from this man. And you don't want to hear any of it because it's so disturbing. Think about and I could relate to that, you know, to a, you know, to a point, of course, when you tell me the story, there's times like I, it's hard to hear. Yeah. You just want right? me to stop. And like, and then there's sometimes where like my reaction is just wow. Or what? Cause I, 
I can't even formulate my feelings on it. So I can't imagine somebody, a detective sitting in a room and you're getting every detail from the person that committed it. Yeah. In weird, like, nasty detail. And you have to sit through that whole thing. Yeah. Because you have to find out everything about it. Yeah. So I can understand that that must have been very, very difficult. That was hard. Because it's, sometimes it's hard for me to just listen to you tell retell a story. Oh, know? I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, I mean, and I'm sure other people feel that way, um, even though we want to hear it. Um, yeah, it's um, it's crazy. Howard started from the beginning, and he went into extreme detail. A lot of times what happens is um, they kind of get sexual gratification from retelling the stories, which I think was happening here in this situation. He said that this had all started when he was a student at the University of Oklahoma in the early 1980s. Then he was just a peeping Tom. But as the years went on, just looking into windows of women was not enough to sexually gratify him. So he escalated. He said the first rape he committed was in 1985 when he broke into the home of a young girl while she was home alone sleeping. He physically held her back like held her arm back and raped her during the rape um he asked if she was black and she said no she was indian and then throughout the rape he was like just saying derogatory things to her regarding the fact that she was indian and he held her down and after he raped her he forcibly had oral sex with her um he didn't like the aggression of that crime he said which was why he then switched to the incapacitating of his victims. He said that he always kissed. This is going to be so gross. Guys, just know I don't want to say any word of what I'm going to say. Oh, no. (laughs) He always kissed the girls because he wanted to be romantic with them. And he didn't want to make them feel bad about themselves. Okay, I'm throwing up my mouth right now. Yeah. In one case, he said he could have raped a girl a second time, but he chose not to because he didn't want to traumatize her too much. He even left a note on her wall that read, I could have raped you again, but I didn't. What a bleeding heart. Yeah. He did say that he regretted one of his victims being 15 years old, that he didn't know how young she was. It's just the mindset of these people are is always just insane to me. He called what he did urban hunting. And like, that's what he would say in every, he's going urban hunting. And sometimes when he would go on business trips, he would stay awake all night to drive to his hunting grounds and then come back. Um, so he called it urban hunting and that he would use ether whenever he could get his hands on it. But he couldn't always get his hands on it. So that's why he also had a taser. He also added, as time went on, his ego grew because he had been committing these crimes for 24 years and he hadn't been caught. So he thought he was invincible. And for a while, he kind of was. Yeah, I mean, they couldn't get him. So obviously he's going to... He's going to be more confident going into every single rape that he's committing. Yes. So the detective asked him why he did this. He was good looking. He could be with any woman he wanted to be. Like, why? At one point in the interview, he kind of phrased the question as, 
you could have had anything. And Howard Bruce smirked at him and said, I did. See, that's how you know right there that no remorse. This guy is just a scumbag. Yes. There, there's no this guy deserves to never see the light of day again. Yes. I mean, there's no remorse there. You know, he doesn't give a shit like the same way that he you know, says, you know, about, you know, oh, I could have raped you again. Uh, oh, you know, thanks, oh, buddy. Uh, th- you know, like that's all BS. He didn't want to traumatize. That's that's all BS. And you know it. Yeah, it is. Well, I think that's, you know, sometimes these criminals like to think they have this honor code. Well, they're trying to appeal. They try to appeal a little bit to, like, whoever they're talking to to kind of not make it feel as, I don't know, make it feel as weird. I don't know. But, like, they're trying to appeal to something within the person they're speaking to. I get it. That's why he's saying that. Yeah. Like, oh, I am talking to someone that has made a terrible mistake for 20-something years. And, you know, like, that's what he's trying to do. And that's not going to work because you're a horrible human being. (laughs) You know? I mean, there's no other way to cut it. And then when he said, like, oh, I feel bad about the 15-year-old girl, we we have seen that with other criminals. Like, you mentioned Richard Ramirez earlier. Yeah. But he never admitted to what happened with the children. It's the same thing. It's like they have this bizarre code. A very bizarre code that no one else but themselves relate to. Because they're psychotic. Yeah. So, Robert Howard Bruce would never see the light of day again. His reign of terror was over. The state of Colorado sentenced him to 104 years. The state of Oklahoma sentenced him to 177 years. And the state of New Mexico sentenced him to 156 years. His victims could all rest assured that he would never hurt anyone else ever again. The emotional damage that Howard Bruce inflicted is unfathomable. But the women he attacked are survivors. In interviews she had given after the sentencing of her now ex-husband, Zoylyn Martinez explained how painful it was to explain to her sons what happened to her and what their stepfather had done to other women. In the process, she had to explain what rape was to her youngest son. But she is most definitely a fighter and will not let what he did to her stop her from living a wonderful life with her friends and family, nor will the other survivors of the Ether Man. And as it is for the other women, the sentencing closed a chapter in their lives that they felt had never ended. It was now Howard Bruce... That would go into the ether. I like that, Kay. You like, that was what good. I did? you like what I did there? That was good. Yeah, that was that was a crazy one. And I was like, how can I present this in a way that like it will take you on the crazy, emotional, twisty, turny journey that I was on while researching it? So it took a while for me to figure out how to like put this case together. Yeah. But I, I'm I, glad I, it came out this way. Yeah, me too. I mean, I you know what? I is it crazy to for me to put this on like a top ten for me? This is a top ten for me because I just love how we thought we were just dealing with some weird dude that was controlling over his new wife. You thought he was gonna hurt her. Yeah, I thought he was. It was gonna be like some sort of like uh, domestic violence issue that got really bad, mm-hmm. and then maybe it was there was more victims in the past or whatever. 
But for it to turn into what it did, that's crazy. That it blew my mind. But I did say, like, I knew something you was did, wrong. When you were saying the deck, I was like, no, stop. It's it was like mementos <laughs> or whatever. I, it was weird. And you know what's weird about that list of things? We don't know what that was, and it's never been connected to anything in any way. I have a, I have a theory. Go ahead. Could that have been potential victims that he met out in the world while working? Or while he was canvassing, and then he just never got to them. No, because he did his urban hunting. That's what he liked to do, to watch these women, see when they were alone. I'm just saying I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. I, I think he might have been having affairs. Because if it's like an old box, maybe that was w- the way he used to maybe look for people, for women, before well, he got I a think, little bit more sophisticated. I think he maybe. was just really, truly having affairs on his ex-wife. Like, not from Joy Lynn. Like, I think he's probably right that that was from his ex-wife. Maybe. I just think that, I mean, that... Because those women were never victims of his. That we know of. Yeah. No, no, they know that those women were never victims. Okay. So now, before we go, we just want to say thank you to our new subscribers on Patreon. We hope you guys are enjoying the episodes. So thank you so much to Curtis Burnett, Katie Mary... Ashley Chitwood, Sherry Barrow Katosh, Denisha Woods upped her pledge and joined for the whole year, so we're happy you're staying with us. Kristen Minnis, Sue Lewis, Caitlin, Lisa Armstrong, Stacy Vandis, Julia McIntyre, J.M., Chris Hernandez, Madeline. Elizabeth Spearber, Nikki Avanici upped her pledge, Kel, Nicole Howell joined us for the whole year, Lynn Balamuda, Amanda Prow, Lee, Brenna Fullwood, Allison Adams, Brittany Felicello, Gwen Malascon, Amy Riley, Tanya Miller, Casey J, Karen Chalpnik, Jennifer Cross, Casey Jennings, Chan Turn, Julie Patrick, Taylor Wolf, Linda Rad, and Nicole Smith. Thank you guys so much for joining. We hope again you're enjoying Patreon. And to everyone else out there, don't park next to vans. Bye guys. Bye guys. <laughs>